I can't tell you the number of times I hear schools that tell me, well, we're trying inquiry learning now. Really, inquiry, that's a new idea. And, and you're trying it because it has a high risk of fatality. There's a, there's a real danger associated with inquiry that it might not work out so well. But next, you're going to, next year, you're going to return to not asking questions. Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson. And when I was first starting my speaking career about a dozen years ago, I did an event up in Buffalo called NYSKATE. And it was the first time that I was going to meet Gary Steger. And I knew Gary was in the audience watching my presentation. And I was really nervous because... Gary had, and still does, have a really high bar for conversations around education, and, and I didn't know how he would react to what I was saying. It was right at the beginning of this push for social media and, and learning with online technologies and blogs and wikis and all those fun things back then. And I'll never forget, after my presentation, I met Gary and Sylvia Martinez, and I sat down at a table with them. and. And I looked at him and I said, so what did you think? And he looked at me, he paused, and he said, well, at least you didn't lie to him. And I took that as the hugest compliment because um, I was really waiting for him to just tear into what I had, had said and into my presentation. And, and, you know, ever since then, Gary's just been one of my really good friends and I have to say probably one of the best, if not the best teacher I've had in my life. He has been someone who has constantly pushed my thinking. He has been someone who has connected me to ideas and people and resources that I never knew existed. People like Seymour Saracen and Seymour Papert and Carla Rinaldi and Angelo Petri and, and uh, many, many others. Deb Meyer, people who I probably should have been reading in my pre-service program but had never heard of until Gary started sending me articles. He actually even sent me a box of books one time. And and I don't think there's been a bigger influence on the way that I think or the way that I speak about education than Gary. So it was a real treat to have Gary back on the podcast last week, provocative as ever. He was our most listened to podcast last year. So even though he's provocative, we know that people are engaged in his ideas. And so we wanted to give Gary uh, another opportunity to talk a little bit about how he sees the world today, a year later, and some of the things that are on his mind. Always entertaining. I'm probably going to listen to this podcast at least three or four times myself just to make sure I pick up all of the nuggets of things that Gary puts out there. And I'm um, really looking forward, with fingers crossed, to be doing some two-day workshops with Gary this fall, and we'll have more details on that as, uh, as they become available. But uh, just want to remind you, too, before we get to the, the conversation with Bruce and Gary and myself, that it is uh, early May as we put this podcast out, and in about a month, Change School 8 is going to start. Um, as always, we're excited about bringing together a new cohort of people from around the world who are asking a lot of the questions that Gary's asking and who are trying to reimagine schools in ways that put kids at the center and, and really focus on learning 
in in the ways that the modern world allows us to create and connect and communicate and all that good stuff. All of that information is at change.school if you are interested. We'd love to have you join us. And um, don't forget also that, as always, we have a whole bunch of stuff going on at modernlearners.com. So check that out if you want to continue your learning. And certainly, we're talking about these and other things related to education in our Modern Learners community. Um, you can find that at modernlearners.com MLC. Almost a 1,000 people now from around the world who are um, engaging in all sorts of really good stuff, book studies and conversations around podcasts just like this one and um, looking at articles and Zoom sessions, all sorts of, of great stuff. would invite you to check it out, 30 days free, and you can sign up at that address. But for now, here's about an hour with Gary and Bruce and me, and as always, it's pretty much of a roller coaster ride. Uh, so buckle up, sit tight, and enjoy the conversation. Gary, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. And uh, you know, as always, Bruce and I love having a chance to talk to you either online in sessions like this or even offline. Um, one of the things that you posted on your blog recently was a uh, keynote that you did in Vilnius, and uh, I was saying to you before we started that. I've watched it a couple of times, and I just think it's a it's a great uh, example of your work um, and the ways in which you are continually pushing the edge um, on, in terms of how we think about education, how we think about learning in schools. Some of the stories that you tell are are, are just fascinating, and uh, some of the examples that you give are are certainly ones that I think we can uh, try to emulate and think about how we make happen in our schools. Um, but you know, I know that one of the things that you obviously emphasize in all of your talks is the idea of, of, of constructing knowledge. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about your conference coming up, Constructing Modern Knowledge, which is coming up uh, in July, I think, in, in uh, New Hampshire. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that toward the end. But um, it's been a, a, certainly something that has been uh, near and dear to your heart in terms of how we get that type of of project work happening in schools at a high level where kids are really learning at a, at a you know, at a very deep level and, and doing work that lives in the world. So what are you seeing these days and, and what are you thinking in terms of how schools are beginning to maybe shift toward that or are still struggling with with uh, that, that kind of work happening in classrooms? Well, it's a pleasure to be here, first of all. Um, all of my work is, is centered on the Piagetian idea that knowledge is a consequence of experience. It, it, I find it increasingly remarkable how much that idea, the knowledge of the consequence of experience, influences all of my thinking about learning and teaching, and they're not the same. And even, even um, work around curriculum and assessment. You know, to the extent that we think there are actual problems in education today, I, I, I think you can diagnose most of those problems as an absence of, of authentic experience for kids. So. That leads me to begin to believe that the project should be a teacher's smallest unit of concern. And there's a growing body of research to support this idea. Um, Paula Blickstein and some colleagues at Stanford University have done research where they demonstrated that if a student um, works on a project, does something before they watch the video, attend the lecture, read the chapter in the book, they have deeper understanding than if the order was reversed, um, so that the project isn't seen as the dessert you get if you've you've suffered through nine weeks of asparagus. Uh, <laughs> but 
Um, but a lot of my work really suggests that the project can replace the instruction entirely. Um, and I, I just wrote a, a blog post a couple days ago about the subtlety of prompt setting, about how important it is to set a good prompt if you want really efficacious um, you know, projects to take place in your classroom that have a intellectual nutritional value that's more than just being cute or, or a distraction. And I, I, I've sort of riffed on, on how simple change in, in verbiage um, can can transform the activity quite dramatically. So Sylvia Martinez and I did a, a series of workshops in Texas a couple of weeks ago, and we had an engineering challenge in each of the workshops using the Hummingbird Bit Robotics Kit and found materials and assorted junk and arts and crafts supplies. And the prompt I set was, the Easter Bunny is sick, something has to deliver the eggs. And someone retweeted it as problem the Easter Bunny is sick, build a robot to deliver the eggs. And I wrote a few hundred words about how that slight modification um, changes the people's um, relationship with the project, create, brings all sorts of baggage about what a robot is versus not what a robot is. It narrows the range of expression for exploring the project. It, it poses everything as sort of problem solution as, as opposed to um, having an idea and exploring and molding and tinkering. And, you know, design thinking is swell if you're trying to create a new toothpaste tube um, with finding out what the, what the, you know, what does the customer need? What's the pain point? How do you market it? It's not so good for playing the cello or for history. And, and just taking... The Easter Bunny is sick, something has to deliver the eggs and turning it into problem. The Easter Bunny is sick solution, um, which also implies, by the way, that there's a right or wrong answer that you're being assessed on it, that you're going to be judged on, on the quality of your of your of what you've made. Um, a role, you know, build a robot to to um, to, to deliver the eggs narrows the narrows the project down and reduces the kind kinds of range of expression that the students might be able to engage in and the kinds of intellectual work that that would accompany those experiences that that don't need to be so constrained by you know kind of the the traditional verbiage of curriculum you know i i'm thinking a lot these days about how the art of teaching is nearing extinction i think we talked about this in the last podcast um but as we remove agency from from teaching and teachers are handed a script and become they become less thoughtful in their practice. And as they become less thoughtful in their practice, the results suffer. And as the results suffer, we remove more agency. And it's this recursive downward spiral um, where I think that we need to, to, to really address the issue of, of what it means to be a teacher, not just the mechanical aspects of it, you know, the animal control and curriculum delivery, but learning how you can use a wide variety of materials and you can create a classroom where um, that's less authoritarian or even you know less less like a conductor or a choreographer controlling every instance of what happens in the classroom that uses a wide range of materials that allows for the seamless connection between subject areas um, you know and one more example that I just saw in the field 
a school that I was at recently, quite lovely a school, was really making an attempt to be more project-based, more interdisciplinary. And there was some good stuff going on. The Mostly it was the kind of stuff that you would say you would find in a good primary school. You know, the kids made a class store and it was a bank and they were the middle school science classes were, um, I can't remember the proper words for it. You know, they were they were looking at the, the botany surrounding the schools and they were collecting it and they were then they were they were categorizing it and they were pressing it in books and they were creating taxonomies and they were engaging the work of biologists it was all good stuff and then i stumbled upon a, a class of kids whose project was to make a board game because right after making a brochure you always have to make a board game make a board game that combines civilization civilizations and cellular biology because the teachers had decided that that semester they were going to combine social studies and bio and science. Um, and the kids had this kind of rather tortured way of talking about the similarities between civilizations and cellular biology. And I asked them, do you really think those, those two things go together or <laughs> were they just mushed together by the teacher for some, you know, some random reason? And the kids were, of course, very defensive, and they, made, you know, they thought it was really important that we understood that civilizations were just like cells. Um, but I, I get what the school was going for. I think if if it was more normal for kids to work on authentic work, um, to look at things that were happening in the news or problems in their community or things that interested them, um, and then the teacher could could identify the ways that those projects cross disciplines as opposed to making the goal crossing disciplines and then trying to shoehorn figure out some way to to mm -hmm. concoct some insane project that that proved the point that social studies is just like science so i mean so, so, you so obviously about really like just turning stuff upside down completely right well, I mean, and, you know, as always, you, you provoke with statements like uh, a project can replace instruction almost entirely. Right. And yeah. and yet I know that that, that picking out, uh, again, a quote from that um, presentation you gave in Vilnius where you were talking about Reggio. Right. And the idea yeah. that, you know, the most important role of the teacher is to be a researcher that understands the thinking of the child and helps make private thinking public and invisible thinking visible, that it is about you know, creating conditions more than it is about um, telling kids what they need to know and how they need to know it and when they need to know it. But that's a struggle, right? I mean, we've, we basically, our entire system is built on this idea that teachers instruct, teachers teach. So, I mean, what's your advice to people who want to make that step, but find it difficult culturally in their schools to kind of push back against the idea that um, if you're not instructing, you're not teaching? Well, first of all, we need to have the courage to deal with the morbidly obese curriculum. My friend Brian Harvey from UC Berkeley used to say, the key to school reform is throw out half the curriculum, any half. Um, you know, another thing you can do is that if you're lecturing for 40 minutes, try 20. If you're talking for 20, try 10. If you're talking for 10, try five. The great gift that I received from working in the prison for teenagers for three and a half years, where we put the kids' interests in and needs and curiosity and talents and expertise ahead of some arbitrary list of stuff um, was that these kids wouldn't suffer through more than a minute or two of instruction. 
And it turns out you never need more than a minute or two of instruction. Show the kids how to do something, ask them to do, do something new. You can regroup, you can bring kids back together. You can say, hey, Will, Will knows how to do this. He's an expert in that. Bruce has demonstrated that he knows this thing. Talk to him if you need help. Um, but, but the default should be less us, more them, as you've heard me say on a number of occasions. So, I mean, there's also the apocryphal story that, that Sinatra, that, that about Sinatra going backstage to meet Luciano Pavarotti and Sinatra asking Pavarotti, you know, maestro, how do you end your notes so, so beautifully? And Pavarotti replied, you close your mouth. Um, I, I find that I'm the most effective as a teacher when I do the least. Um, so recognizing that that the learner is central to the learning process and that learning isn't the direct result of having been taught is is a way to get to the idea that um, less less us more them is viable and we know from our own experience there's no substitute for experience we learn by doing things and i'm i'm repeatedly you know continuously amazed by the length to which schools will go to create fake experiences for kids when real ones exist you know so there's you know 12-year curricula about talking about computing instead of actually computing or you know we have to have advisory to get to know the kids because their math teacher never gets to know them well you know your math teacher could get to know the kids in in a math class if you were engaged in kinds of activities and and the class was social and kids were involved um or you know i'm i'm reading an increasing number of of articles from in places like um edutopia which i want to talk about a little later where where you know they have breathless lists of ways to get kids to talk in class now, first of all, isn't that the thing we punish them for? Um, so maybe if we stop punishing kids for being social, they'd be more social in class. But second of all, I find that a lot of this rhetoric is just another form of assessment, just a way of getting coercing kids to engage in discussions about things that are facile, superficial, and irrelevant to them. Um, I don't think there's any problem with kids talking if you create an environment of, of mutual respect and where there's a common purpose and there's, or there are interesting things to do. The conversations then emerge much more naturally. But so, Gary, I want to dig a bit more into some of the stuff you've just been saying, and in particular, Please. I want to. You talk about problems. I've shared them in the chat there. It's on your blog around problems, and the notion of a lot of what you're saying has an incredible amount of um, simplicity to it. It's not really simple; it's elegant in that you're extracting the essence of what it should all be about and expressing it in a way that has appealed to a lot of people. But as, as Will said, it's hard for a lot of people to translate that into their own practice. And what I want to do is translate that, come across to constructing modern knowledge. Because my view about the hidden power of what you do in that event in July is that rather than talk about it, in simple or elegant terms, people see it in practice. They see that actually happening over those days, and that's and it, that allows them, educators who are there, to actually see what you're talking about and participate in it. So they have the confidence to do that in their own space. That's right. Well, you know, two things come to mind. One is, you know, one of my heroes, Miles Davis, is known to have said, "It's not the notes you play, but the ones you leave out." And, and that's probably not such bad advice for teachers right. as well. 
but look, CMK demonstrates year after year after year what teachers are capable of doing, and by extension, therefore, their students um, in an environment that's completely free of coercion and instruction. Oh, and I'll, I'll show a couple examples before we go later in a, in a little bit. But we start with a ritual that looks simple, but has been developed over 25 years, maybe close to 30 years, not 30 years now, um, where we just ask people what they want to make. And, and after they, that sort of marinates a little bit, we then say, okay, go make it. And people form their own teams, often with people they've never met before almost entirely with folks from different grade levels and perspectives and subject areas. And then we have a faculty who just supports them in achieving the goals that they had set for themselves. And if the, if their goal changes over time, that's fine. If they, but they, they almost always exceed their expectations and they end up using materials that are on the cutting edge of, of technological innovation, as well as timeless craft materials and traditions. Um, but they do it in that, that project-based um, fashion that that I hope they'll they'll then create for their their students. Um, you know, I think one of the, one of the concerns that I have is that we need to find a cure for for amnesia and for what Seymour Papper called verbal inflation. You know, we behave as if as if no one knows what to do in schools. And my response to that is twofold. One. Um, Increasingly, I believe that every problem in education is theological in nature. It's a matter of, would this be the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do for children? Um, and, and second answer to that idea that we don't know what to do is, if you look behind me, if you come to my house, I have 2,000 books that tell you how to solve every problem in education. I even heard Bill Clinton once say to the National School Boards Association that every problem in education has been solved somewhere. Um, but for some reason, we believe that history begins with us. And when we take that approach, um, we're continuously discovering that which already exists each time with diminished expectations. So let me give you a, an example that I'm starting to see in the edu Twitterverse. Um, schools that have had no tradition of project-based learning or constructivism or constructionism or learner-centered education or with the Reggio Emilia approach or anything that's sort of um, constructivist in nature, um, they discover classroom centers, the idea of classroom centers. You know, a corner of the room where kids could be working on independent stuff on their own um, autonomously and hopefully become good at something and develop agency while doing so. Well, that exciting idea then becomes, well, we have to make it fair. So the teacher identifies the six activities that are going to happen in different parts of the room. And with a stopwatch, they make sure that every seven minutes, the kids flip from one station of the cross to the next. And then someone else who's really hot with Google Docs. And by the way, as soon as you see Google Docs added to a curricular discussion, you, you pretty much can predict it's going to be baloney. Um, it's, it's really sort of gilding the lily. And, and you know, Bruce, I was in workshop, you know, we were doing word processing workshops 35 years ago. The fact that people still think this is something hard and worthy of study is extraordinary to me. Like, like iPad instruction, you know, my three, my hundred three year old grandmother and my three year old grandson figured out the iPad perfectly well on their own. They don't need an NSF grant. Um, but, but, in the, but in the hands of the Google slides folks, 
the classroom center then literally becomes, and I've seen this posted, um, well, you can create a Google slide that you mount above each station and, and the kids are told what the objective is. And you can go to YouTube and find a timer and embed the timer in the Google slide so that the kids know precisely how long they have to work on the task that we've set for them. And then there'll be workshops on how to do this and people will write books about it and there'll be discussions about good ways to use Google Slides to run the stations at a cross and bad ways to do it. In the meantime, all the nutritional value of classroom centers has been lost. The entire idea of the classroom center was you're not in charge, Mr. or Mrs. Teacher, the kid is. And that they can spend some time developing mastery, playing with some idea, working on something that matters to them developing fluency with some materials without a script, without testable objectives. Um, maybe when they're done with the, the classwork, if that's important to you. Um, but this idea, this powerful idea of classroom centers that hippies like us took, took for granted and thought everyone understood has now become this incredibly mechanized way to make sure that teachers remain in firm control of what happens in the classroom, that curriculum is delivered, and that kids are on task, and most of all, using Google Docs um, for you know X number of minutes per week, and then we congratulate ourselves for doing something modern, or remarkable. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times I hear schools that tell me, "Well, we're trying inquiry learning now." Really, inquiry—that's a new idea. And, and you're trying it because it has a high risk of fatality. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a real danger associated with inquiry that it might not quite work out so well. But next, you're going, next year, you're going to return to not asking questions. Um, you know, isn't inquiry just thinking? Um, but now you have an inquiry program. Is, are there some adverse side effects we should be aware of? Um, as, as you know, from when we started with, with laptops nearly 30 years ago, um, it was never considered a pilot or a project. The school just bought laptops. There was, there was no question of whether this was an experiment or not. It was, it was obvious that computers were going to become smaller and less expensive and more portable and more personal. And, and some smart people thought it was a, a good idea to empower kids with those. Um, but now, 30 years later, we're not only still debating whether kids should have access to computers, we've invented entire mechanisms and in industries um, hell-bent on, on limiting what kids are capable of doing with that technology. So, Gary, I mean, you, you're obviously frustrated. I mean, I think, you know, in, when we have conversations about this stuff, uh, I think we, we all get frustrated a little bit in terms of the, the focus of the conversation, the pace of the, the change, quote-unquote. I mean, what are you seeing out there that you think really is movement in the right direction. Um, and, you know, it, it, to as much a degree as possible is something that you think could scale. Um, yeah. Certainly none of it's gonna scale easily, but, you know, could could have some, some, uh, some staying power at least. And it isn't just like a fad that's coming and going and people are putting adjectives in front of nouns and calling it, you know, new pedagogy. Well, first of all, I think it's really important to understand that I'm not punching down, I'm punching up, right? So saying that, that the art of teaching has been lost isn't an indictment of teachers. It's an indictment of a system that's robbed teachers of agency. And that the work that I'm engaged in is helping 
um, reintroduce power and control and the creativity to, to teachers and to demonstrate that that they're capable and competent. So in all of my workshops and all of my work in schools with kids, I'm incredibly optimistic about what they're capable of doing. And I and they leave with a great deal of excitement about potential opportunities that they may not have known existed before. You know, we can't provide rich, nutritious, creative, playful, joyful, wondrous experiences for children if we don't know that those are options. So my work is is committed to increasing the range and breadth and depth of of, of options for 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 teachers and learners to create opportunities for the learner to to not just learn what we've always wanted to teach them with greater efficiency or comprehension, um, but to create opportunities for kids to learn and do in ways that were unimaginable just a couple of years ago. So when I talk about punching up, I'm talking about punching up against a system that's engaged in increasingly meaningless rhetoric. You know, I don't know what we mean by change. Over what period of time? What's the unit of measurement? I think we should uncouple change from technology because surely adding electricity um, to something isn't an authentic indicator of progress, especially since so much of it is used in, you know, instrumental, instructionist, moronic ways. I think fundamentally one of Papert's great contributions to discussions about education is the, the distinction between instructionism and constructionism. The where do you stand about how does learning occur? Do you believe it's the result of something the teacher does? Or do you believe that it's what the learner does at creating the conditions? As you mentioned before we went on, the Piagetian idea that it's not the job of the teacher to correct the child from the outside, but to create the conditions by which they correct themselves from the inside. Um, do you believe that education improves by buying a new book or a whiteboard or some teacher trick or seven ways to engage kids in conversation? Or do you believe that the learner learns and we need to create a productive context for learning in which kids feel safe and secure and um, and have appropriate materials and sufficient time and a supportive culture and good prompts in which they can construct knowledge themselves? I have found over and over and over again that good progressive teachers who live a commitment to the democracy and children and continuous growth aren't challenged or mystified by computing. They see, they see things like logo or they see the micro bit or they see the hummingbird robotics game. They go, yep, I get it. This is just part of my bag of tricks. I'm adding colors to a crayon box. It can also be a way of inspiring teachers to discover that progressive tradition and figure out a way that they could be part of that, that tradition as opposed to just delivering the curriculum or having some sort of adversarial relationship with kids where you're telling them something and, and your expectation is that they'll tell it to you back verbatim as quickly as possible with as, as much comprehension as, as they can muster. Um, so again, I think, I think we need to have a better idea of what we mean by change or stop talking about it altogether. And, and perhaps we need to figure out why modernity has been sequestered. You know, microcomputers have now been in schools for 40 years. We're no longer talking about one generation of kids missing out on opportunities. We're now talking about two. And, and so um, I don't think social media has added anything. I mean, you know, Will and I know each other probably 20 years, and I told you that none of this was going to matter then. And I think you probably agree. 
by now. It's just a dial tone. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a great idea for it's a great idea for teachers to talk to one another. Duh. Um, we should have figured out why they don't talk to each other in the first place. And 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 so what we have now is, you know, we, maybe it's not Russian bots, but it's certainly folks folks with teams of 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 Twitterers who are posting preposterous ideas on 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 a regular basis, sometimes five or six times a day. Um, that that are not be, that are not only not helpful, but I think a lot of what they're they're telling teachers um, gives them a false sense of com complacency, and and at the worst is giving really terrible advice that will make things worse for both them and, and kids. I but mean, I will I will say, Gary. I mean, and I I am yeah. I've fallen more to that side of the argument certainly than I was when we first met. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not as Pollyannish as I was <laughs> on social media as I was back in the day, but look, I mean, part of, part of the reason we're here tonight, part of the reason that we've got yeah. even just, you know, 23 people on this call is because of social media. I mean, I still think that there are lots of opportunities there and sure. I mean, aren't there, aren't there opportunities to, to do both constructivist teaching and learning with social media? Um, yeah, undoubtedly, but I think, but I think it's been overvalued, and I, and I don't think I, I, I just like I, I go back to what I said, twenty years ago, and I stand by it. It's just the dial tone. It's just a way of talking to each other, and talking to each other is good, but you know, a lot of it suffers from what Papert called verbal inflation. Like I'll give you an example. I saw an Edutopia article a couple of days ago, that that was about project-based learning and research papers, and after you read it, you can't help but conclude. You might just call this asking children to write research papers. There was nothing new about it. There was nothing project-based about it, unless you think project-based is we gave the kids the illusion of choice because they were allowed to pick their research topic. But I was as well in Mary Bell's 11th grade English class in Wayne, New Jersey back in the 70s, where I chose to do my three-month research paper on um, serial music, atonality, because I was confident that she wouldn't know a word or a thing about atonal music, and then she could just grade the punctuation, and she would leave me alone on the content that I was faking. Um, but do you think that but, that's because we don't we don't really know what new means? That we don't have models for it? We can't conceptualize it? Or do you think that new is just scary, or both? Ah, when you give me a choice of two things, I'm going to pick the third one, and, and that is, and that Probably is that surprise, surprise, and that is I don't give a shit about new. New isn't better. Why do we think new is better? You know, you asked me before we, we went live of what I'm reading these days. I'm reading work on open education in the 70s. That's what I'm reading. Um, the best. By the way, Gary, make, talk about your post on the videos you've collected together on that. Yeah, for, for a deeply personal reason, I curated a bunch of ancient videos, ancient being early 1970s and papers and and books that were written about the open education movement. Because despite the fact that every demagogue talking about education uses it as a punchline, um, I think it was the, the golden years of American, British, Australian education, where there, were the, there was the most profound thinking about placing children at the center of a democratic learning experience. Um, so I, I, I think the whole you know change new, those seem to be the wrong 
the wrong goals that we're chasing. And to a certain extent, I even think leadership is the wrong goal to be chasing. What we learned from Piaget is that you, you have to return to some level of concreteness whenever you learn anything new. So if we want to be thinking about leadership, we have to go through a process of thinking about t learning, teaching, and then leadership. We have to go from the personal to the global, from the micro to the macro. I don't see any other way of, of dealing with it. So, you know, a couple of the other new ideas that I'm seeing bandied about, you know, I, I, I tweeted recently that metacognition is the new whack. Um, you know, there are, there are articles that use metacognition as every part of speech. If you don't get it in every sentence, you're not, you're not some sort of modern thinker. And, and, and it, then it's got its, you know, its sister, which is reflection. And I have no problem with metacognition or reflection, except those are intellectual processes that are natural, they're internal, they're casual, they're personal. What these articles about is, is forcing kids to talk in class or to answer our questions or to verbalize the process that they're going through, which is, isn't their process, it's it's regurgitating some process that we've told them is the most effective way of going through it. It's laborious. It's unnatural. It's forced. It's a gimmick. And the bottom line is it's really just a new euphemism for assessment. It's testing what kids can recall that we taught them, whether it's the process or, or the answer to the question. So of course people are engaged in metacognition. Whenever you learn anything, you, re, you know, as Papert said, you can't think about thinking without thinking about thinking about something. And reflection is part of that process as well, but it can happen in a nanosecond when you, when you have some epiphany that makes something make sense for the first time, it connects to some previous experience, and then it inspires the next thing that you want to do. There's a lot of talk about iterative thinking or iterative design in education. And I think generative design is even more exciting. Iterative is about fixing something. We have this problem. We need to fix it. We're going to tune it up. We're going to tweak it. We're going to make it better. We're going to get closer to the right answer. But, but generative processes are a lot more exciting. If I show a kid forward and right in turtle art or any other version of logo, they immediately have an idea of something to do. And that leads to some other idea. And then there's some debugging involved. And they have to rethink their problem or look at it from a different perspective or seek some assistance or connect it to some prior experience or, or, or knowledge that they have. And then that leads to some new discovery that inspires some other asking of a deeper question, testing of a larger hypothesis, new form of creation challenge for themselves. The, you know, I've, I've talked about this before. I'm obsessed with the question of how do teachers create a, an environment in which kids can become good at something? And if, and if you look at anyone, whether you look at your son playing basketball or, or a trumpet player, they're, they're able to identify something small that bothers them. And they can work tirelessly, obsessively, until they can overcome that obstacle. And then the next obstacle reveals itself to them. That happens in hobbies as well. And so how do we create the condition in schools where, where kids can become good at something and hopefully get a taste or a glimpse of what greatness looks like so that they'll develop the habits of mind in order to pursue personal greatness, whatever that happens to mean for them, you know, and, and, and one, one thing that I find that my good liberal friends do on an almost daily basis that we need to resist the temptation to succumb to is 
the idea that just because we think it's a good idea that every kid should have it added to the curriculum. Well, kids should learn to balance a checkbook and be more responsible with their finances. We should add financial literacy to the curriculum. You know, we should add digital citizenship to the curriculum. The latest article that's floating around my Facebook feed is everyone should take home ec to learn life skills. Well, first of all, um, if they're not prepared for life, then we have much bigger problems with our educational process than um, than what happens third period, you know, every two weeks or for a for a marking period of, of home ec. Um, but but more importantly, my own experience suggests that every time we have a great idea for a required class that should be added to the curriculum for every kid, a music teacher dies. It's it's just the fact of life that every time we mandate some idea, no matter how worthwhile we think it is, then then kids have a narrowing of the curriculum. They have less time for electives. We have fewer specialist teachers employed. We have less access to expertise and the kinds of experiences where kids can fall in love with something and become good at it. So I, I think we need some personal discipline to say that we should create schools where kids can become good at something and be a little less parochial in defining what that something has to be. And surely not constraining that something to be something that everyone has to do on some date certain in order to satisfy some, you know, political expectation or, um, you know, or, or fad. Um, Gary, just, just one more, because I'm not sure my sound has been a bit wavy. Um, you, you know, a lot of what you're saying and have always been saying is the move away from instruction and you talk in uh, certainly of late about the art of teaching can you talk can you talk a little bit more it, it's it's certainly where you've been going with this discussion about what you see as the art of teaching well first of all it used to be part of preparation for teachers now when i studied to be a primary teacher you, you you learned how to make math manipulatives and use math manipulatives you learned how to teach phys ed and science and history and social studies you were required to play the piano a little bit even if badly um and take nature walks and bake cookies and make mobiles and engage in arts and crafts um and differentiate instruction and have classroom centers and kids working collaboratively <clears throat> and then mid 80s almost everywhere in the world legislatures said hey teaching ain't nothing all you need is a face and a willingness to show up and and they just reduced teacher preparation to, like I said before, curriculum delivery and animal control. And so that that's the preparation piece of it. But then there's the sort of instinctual piece to it. There's the um, having a bag of tricks. It's the knowing the literature. It's knowing that you're part of a tradition that's bigger than yourself. It's being able to answer the question of how do you seize the learning opportunities that abound around us? Why is it that some teachers can listen to the radio for 15 minutes on the way to school or, God forbid, read a newspaper and have 20 ideas immediately for things to do with their fourth graders, eighth graders, 11th graders that can that can really engage them and and get them excited about learning and lead to powerful ideas and other teachers? It never occurs to them. Um, so. I, I think it's a it's not just a matter of. Pedagogical strategy. It's also having, like I said, having some discipline about 
editing the morbidly obese curriculum. It's about a new diet of of educational content for kids that's more relevant, that's that's connected to their lives and their world. Um, of a willingness to change some of the sequence of getting rid of some stuff, but by and large, it's about delighting in the company of the company of the nutty kids about waking up every morning and asking yourself, how do I make this the best seven hours of a kid's life about recognizing that, um, we're not in linoleum sales. What we do, what we do matters. It's, it's critical for, for a thriving democracy that, you know, I'm, 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 completely ready for the looming liberal arts crisis when we hear politicians panicking about the fact that you know kids no longer play musical instruments or or can write or have an idea or or and and our arts institutions start failing because no one's going to concerts and etc and we can't export culture um you know making a contribution to leaving the world a better place than we found it and that includes the sort of development of soul and tradition and wisdom and beauty and whimsy um, and purpose that comes from having a a broad meaningful um, personally relevant educational experience so gary i i want to get to a couple of questions that people have been asking um there's been a great chat going on i know it's hard to follow when you're you know you're talking and hyperventilating other things yeah hyperventilating or whatever right so there are a couple of questions here that I think are really interesting. Um, April Please. asks, so if you only had one choice, not three, <laughs> uh, what would you do next to improve Western education or education in general? I, I, I think as many decisions as possible should, need, should be made as close to the children as possible. That, you know, I, I think, you know, I agree with my, my friend Deborah Meyer that you know, we, we need to restore democracy, not just to the classroom, but to, but to the community that shit that surrounds the classroom and that curricular decisions and every everything else that affects kids should be made as close to the classroom as possible um, and, and and generate a strong community that has shared values and and also has a language for articulating why it is they do what they do. Um, I've, I've recently found myself with working in schools where, um, you know, teachers teachers came to constructing modern knowledge they went back to their schools on fire all kinds of great stuff starts happening other schools are sending teachers to visit and i was in one actually in australia not too long ago and the administration asked me what would i do next and i said well now that the teachers are doing something and they know what it feels like and they they're they're a lot more clear on the value of it now it's time to reintroduce some theory because they need a language for being able to articulate why it is that they do what they do so that they can they can be advocates for doing more of it and for sustaining it and for making it immune to a new principle snapping their fingers and killing that innovation so that it, that it becomes the norm and the only way you can do that is by recognizing that you stand on the shoulders of giants that you're um, you're part of something larger than yourself and that there's a tradition of people who have done the right thing for a long time in various places around the world over the centuries. Um, I, we can we can share the link, but I, I recently reposted a collection of, of recommended whole school summer reading books that I used in one of the schools that I was working in, that regardless of your particular interest or grade level or subject area, 
um, they all sort of pointed in the direction of what we've been discussing. And then you can have multiple inputs, but but a shared sense of direction by by actually reading something. And this was in a school where the principal didn't think the teachers would read the book and where you know, she refused to remind them over the summer and where the two days that we were supposed to discuss what they read got cut to 40 minutes after the CPR training went long. And the teachers had not only read the books and had really rich, thoughtful, grown-up discussions about them, but they, they were spontaneously swapping books with each other afterwards because they wanted to read and learn more. Mm -hmm. And and so that was a matter of, of having some expectations of creating the conditions and and sharing resources um, that would inspire people to to do a better job. I think um, just going back to the first answer, the first part of that answer too, you know, with Deborah Meyer, one of the ironies of school is that you know it's one of the least democratic institutions in our democracy, and we're supposed to be preparing kids <laughs> to participate in the democracy, well, which is kind well, of look look how well it's working out for us. Yeah, I know exactly, and I think you know a lot of people push back against that idea, but I say that a lot. I think well, this is what you get when you don't really give kids agency and voice and a, a chance to do things in the real world and and to participate fully as citizens, even though they may be six or 16. I mean, I, hey, I I'm gonna, there's always opportunities for that. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go way out there with, for you. Um, for you? I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> well, you know, you know that, you know, I mean, most of my passion and, and commitment to these topics come from the fact that the stuff that brings me the most joy and meaning and purpose and beauty in my life are things that I learned in a public middle school in Wayne, New Jersey. Yes, and I'll be exactly. damned if anybody will deprive another generation of kids of the, those experiences. So there's there's about 13 times a day where I think to myself, wow, that wouldn't be happening if kids had music teachers. Whether it's going to, a, to an event and people not knowing how to behave themselves in public, um, or here's one for you, you know, the whole R. Kelly debacle you know, with the underage yeah. girls and all this other stuff. You know what? If you had sung in a school choir or been in a school musical or taken a saxophone lesson, you probably wouldn't believe the creepy 50-year-old guy in the mall who told you you could be a star. And and your parents might not fall for it either. Right. And, and I, 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 I swear to God, I watched that, that horror show, you know, the documentary series. I thought over and over again, man if these kids had just just had a music class a lot of this wouldn't have happened i mean i'm not being overly simplistic about it but you know knowledge, knowledge is power and i i have a friend who worked on american idol for 11 years and he said to me most of the contestants have never sung with another human being period not a, not an instrumentalist not a musician not in a school choir not in a, in a play not in a church and, and we've got a society that then allows them to be called artists at 16 and tells them that they're geniuses. Um, well, I think, you, you know, one of the, the one of the things that's powerful about sport and the arts is that you get a sense of how well you stack up against others. And and you're and one of the reasons I love jazz is that it's it's an individual expression within a within a democratic collective that it's as you know, Whitten Marsalis and others point out is kind of the epitome of, of democracy in action and I think that when those experiences aren't available to kids I think the society suffers for it and and more importantly the, the kids themselves um, 
have will have less fulfilling you know lives and will enjoy school a whole lot less you know i used to take i used to take serious issue with ted sizer who was otherwise a hero of mine who used to dismissively talk about the shopping mall high school you know the american high school where there were too many choices for kids and and god i used thank god for the shopping mall high school if I had to have three hours of math, I would have I would have taken hostages. If I, if I wasn't programming computers and having two or three music classes a day, I couldn't have gotten through high school. But now we've we've just narrowed the curriculum to where you know it's essentially just language arts and and this this nonsense we call math, um, where and and if you're not good at one or the other for any number of reasons, probably for being poor, then you get more of it louder right 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 in a more punitive fashion i think too Next just question. one last comment and then i think bruce has yeah. has one last question for you but um you know the other thing that always surprises me and and we talk about this a lot too uh, when we're just looking at, at working with schools is is really how little student voice is a part of the conversations of what happens to kids in classrooms um there very rarely do students have an opportunity to engage with adults and talk about what their lives are like in in school and i mean to the point where i'll never you know one of my favorite stories is talking to a superintendent you know before i was going to go speak in her district and she said you know well we're going to be talking about this 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 and i said well are kids going to be there and there was just this long silence on the phone for like like 15 seconds and she goes wow you really got me thinking there <laughs> and I was just, I was just stunned, you know, and reminded at at how much we decide what happens to kids without have giving them any voice or any real consideration as to how it affects their experience. And um, yeah. I do think well, that, you know, it, it's 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 sad on a lot of levels. Well, first of all, we should be really clear that student voice isn't just talking. So what we're really talking about is power. Right. And yep. and so so I'll tell you one student voice experience and then and then I'll, I'll share a suggestion that I just thought of. Um, my my middle kid went to this, went to Australia for a term to, to be in this residential crazy school where they, they bought a town and they built a campus for the kids and they lived eight to a house and they were responsible for taking care of one another and cooking and cleaning. And the curriculum was self in relation to others. And there was no adult in the building with you. And there was no fences around fence around the place. It was fully integrated into the community. And um, my daughter was 15 at the time and it was parent visitation day or weekend. And obviously her parents didn't visit because we were seven or 8,000 miles away. So she walked to the little town adjacent to the campus and she went to lunch by herself. And while she was sitting in a cafe eating lunch, which in and of itself was a huge act of, of bravery, of, of, of maturity, of, of agency, um, one of the members of the faculty of the school walked by, saw in the window that one of the students was eating alone, came in and asked if, if she could join her. And they shared a meal together and had a conversation that humans might have while they were breaking bread with one another. And, and as my daughter retold the story when she came home, um, she teared up a little bit. I tear up when I, when I think about it. She said, my high school teachers don't even ask if we had a nice weekend. Right? Yeah, we, we, live, we live in an age where you can get on the front page of Time Magazine, on the cover of Time Magazine or on CNN, 
for knowing the names of your students or a principal welcoming kids in the morning. So some of that's on us. We, we got to figure out why we've become so, so numb to the, to the human aspect of, of teaching and how we, we, we've taken leave of the idea that our, our principal reason for existing is to benefit kids and to engage in meaningful relationships with them and help them go from where they are to somewhere forward. Um, but then my suggestion to all of us, listen, anybody listening and to, to, to you and Bruce and, and to, to myself more than I have in recent years, um, maybe we need to do more to cause some trouble. You know, when I was 18 and a half years old, I saved school music in my hometown by going to a school board meeting and embarrassing the board members, getting the vote reversed. And then I formed a nonprofit to make sure it never happened again. And after that, I started going to board meetings. But the most outrageous, most radical, most feared thing I did was I started bringing high school kids to the school board meetings. And the, and the high school kids started calling me and asking, how come the principal keeps buying us lunch? And because he's scared to death of you because he doesn't know what you're going to say at a school board meeting. And it was nothing more effective than when a, when a 16 year old kid waited their turn and went up to the microphone and said, you're not listening. I'd like your attention, please. And, and, and aired a grievance about how to make the school system better. Um, you know, then we, we changed policy all the time that way by bringing kids to things. Um, I leafleted outside my kid's high school. I not only withdrew my kids from standardized testing, I encouraged hundreds of other kids not to take the tests. So we should recognize, you know, going into the next presidential election, there are enough teachers or parliamentary elections. There are enough teachers in any jurisdiction anywhere in the world, no matter how big or small, that can throw an election if they vote their own self, they vote their own interests and they band together. So so maybe sure. the way maybe the way we 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 value and honor student voice is by amplifying the kids and by creating opportunities for them to speak, not in these sort of fake ways where we have an event where, you know, we ask them to design a 22nd century school and we give them post-it notes and construction paper, but, you know, tell them there's a board meeting Wednesday night. And did you know you could speak at it? And, and for that matter, maybe we should speak at some of those board meetings as well. Because it was a really powerful lesson for me to learn at 19 years old when I said to the, the right wing crook, crook on the school board that if I bring 10 people to a meeting, you'll change your vote. And he said, yes. <laughs> that was a really powerful experience. And so maybe we restore democracy to kids and, and honor their voice by, by creating an opportunity for them to actually make a difference. So let me let me segue, use that segue, because we've been here, and in all honesty, uh, the three of us and I think everyone on board, we could sit here for a number of hours, Gary, so we really, really appreciate the time you've given My pleasure. us. Um, I want to do a couple of things. I'm going to use the segue for making trouble to set up something, uh, and that's to go back to the mention I did of the Institute, yeah. Constructing yeah. Modern Knowledge. Now, for those people who missed it, I've just posted the link in uh, in the chat again, and we've got something like nearly 30 people on the call and people who come in the podcast. Constructingmodernknowledge.com, we'll put the link at the bottom of the post. And it's on July 16 to 19 in Manchester. Um, if you have any doubts about it, just talk to someone who's been there. It's People say to us that it's the most powerful uh, professional learning that they could be doing. It, it puts into practice what Gary's been talking about. It gives you a chance to engage 
in the process and to understand at a much deeper level what Gary's been talking about. But also, Gary, if you want to talk just a little bit about that again, but also I want to make mention of the new edition of the book, um, Invent to Learn. I think that I, I would I would suspect, oh, hello, just by accident, Gary has a copy of the book. <laughs> and I'd have to say I, I, my guess would be this is probably one of the top-selling educational uh, books of the last decade in the world. I'm not, I'm not understating that, overstating that. And um, I know you've had it translated into quite a number of, of different languages. Can you talk a little bit about that new edition of the book and also maybe touch a little bit more sure. on construction of knowledge in July? Sure. So um, it was fairly remarkable that we wrote a book that had to do with educational technology that was still selling strong at six years later, um, which which was sort of a testament to the fact that we got the big ideas right and the technology was secondary to it. Um, that we wanted to build a bridge between the informal learning community that was creating incredibly cool materials with which to construct knowledge and express oneself and solve problems that was called the maker movement with this progressive learner-centered tradition that, that schools should be part of. And um, so we wrote Invent to Learn six years ago, and we recently published a new edition of it, which is revised. All the resources are updated. It has 25% more content. Um, for some reason, the, the revision of the book took a year. The original book took three months to write. Um, I, it, near, it nearly killed us, the revision. I was, it was harder to write than the original, trying to get things right. Um, I think one of the, the only thing that we had sort of underplayed was the importance of software, how, how important software is to making things possible for learning, even when it comes to learning by making, even when it comes to making physical things. Um, that there were, there were some technologies that we thought were going to be really powerful six years ago that have taken off in the non-education space that that were just too unwieldy and and too undemocratic because of the the steep learning curve to dealing with the syntax and um, weird peculiarities of the, the software that are now being replaced by new software that that does that allows new hardware to do almost the exact same things but in a way that's more accessible to learners in a way that connects more powerful intellectual ideas that allows more kids to participate and and um, express themselves one other quick plug is we ne next monday we're releasing a new book called the, the, the art of digital fabrication um, by a teacher from connecticut named erin riley who's a really gifted art teacher and mm. she she takes the approach with really sort of beautiful, colorful, step-by-step, open-ended projects of, we, I, I said, I can see if I can get it right, that we're learning with the, the eye of, an, of a scientist and, the, and the, um, no, with, the, with the heart of a scientist and the critical eye of an artist, that she's taken things like programming and fabrication technologies like 3D printers and laser cutters and vinyl cutters and CNC machines, stuff that was unavailable, unimaginable to kids just a few years ago, and, and approaches it in a way that a, an art teacher would have for hundreds of years of saying, we're going to look at drawing, but we're going to draw with code, we're going to draw with machines, we're going to draw with robots, we're going to draw with electronics, um, we're going to paint and we're going to do it in different kinds of ways. And we're really excited about the book. We think it's going to be a, a gold standard that's that, that may have a real impact, whether you teach art or not. It's about creativity, about making sense of this stuff. Um, 
Constructing Modern Knowledge is in its 12th year. It's a summer institute that I created based on all the things that I had learned over the years about teaching teachers, about all the kinds of principles that we've been discussing. It was rooted in conversations that I used to have with Seymour Papert about the need to build a bridge between the progressive education community that wasn't thinking enough about modernity and an ed tech community that was no longer about powerful ideas and didn't give enough um, time or attention to, to issues of learning. And it's a completely non-coercive, project-based, collaborative, if you choose to collaborate, environment where for four days you have you have the opportunity to uninterrupted to work on personally meaningful projects with an amazing faculty guest speakers who are some of the most creative and and um interesting thinkers of our time and 60 cases of high and low tech materials we try to have everything within arm's reach that anyone would need to, to learn something or to solve a problem um, based on something that they wanted to make. We asked the teachers to take off their teacher hat and put on their learner hat and be selfish with the experience so that they, they can have the quality of experience that we would hope they would create for their students. Um, can I take a couple minutes to share a couple couple slides? Absolutely. It's gonna, yeah, go now, it. pay no attention to the man behind the curtain because some of this is gonna be a little tricky um, because you decided to make you a guinea pig with this new technology. Um, but let's see if I can find this. Bear with me one second. Um, I want to find the right. Okay, here we go. And now I'm almost there. I'm going to share this. Yeah, we're, we're patiently respecting your new glasses. They look uh, a treat, mate. Thank you. Um, I had it a second ago. We find the screen. All right, we got time. Oh, I'm sorry about this. Just while, just while you're doing that, mate, just another yeah. mention. I, I did post it in the chat. Um, I know that everyone has been. I must. I, I would say this has been possibly one of, if not the most active chat that we've had um, in one of these live. Uh, broadcast. It's uh, fantastic to see the dialogue and the questions that are coming from people. We un unfortunately haven't, won't have a chance to go through all of them, but the discussion's been excellent. And, and we made mention for those people who aren't already in the Modern Learners community, you can go there by modernlearners.community. If you're already in there, I know Lynn and Linda and Hazel are setting up conversations in there around the topics that Gary's raised. And we look forward to continuing the conversation there um, after this podcast and for the next few days and ho hopefully weeks. So, Look forward to, to seeing you continue our discussion. Well, it worked, it worked during the rehearsal. Um, let me try one more time. Should be top center of your video screen is the share screen. I have. Up there. I'm waiting. Um, oh, there we go. Looks yep, like you're coming up. Hang on. Now you see yep, something? Yep. Uh, yep. Okay, so... You know, after we after we went through the ritual last year of asking folks about what they wanted to make, and they wrote it down on the wall and such, we then took them into a giant aircraft hangar-sized room with all the materials and lots of tables and spaces spread out, and and it was kind of like you could see in that photo, you know, a kid, a toddler at Disneyland for the first time, or you know, going to going to Willy Wonka's factory of seeing what was available, not just in the materials that we have which, like I said, is voluminous, but also a 500-book library, et cetera. Um, 
this is one of my favorite um, projects. This is a, a young teacher named Kelly Knight, who's actually been to CMK three times. And she's returning this year, I think, for a fourth time. And when we were discussing what they would like to make, she said she wanted to make an animated Marie Antoinette wig. Well, okay, of course you want to make an animated Marie Antoinette wig. And hopefully the video and the audio will work, or one or the other, you can you can tell me and we'll tweak it. But this is this incredible sculpture that she created that has birds that fly around, and when she tilts her head, the birds chirp. And it was a little straw that she could blow into that would expel 3D printed bees out the of scene the scene. Gary, the video, the video is not working, but we can see the working. picture. Yeah, see the picture. Got audio. Um, did you get audio? A little bit. Yep. Oh, I oh I figured out how to do it. Wait, let's try it this way. Never mind. <laughs> no, try it this way. How about that? Is that working? No. 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 Ah. <laughs> Okay, we'll try. Did the video work, or the audio, or either, or both? Well, I think the audio is coming. The audio is coming through your microphone, um, but the video, the video didn't work. No. Okay. But it's a beautiful right. picture. Uh, <laughs> lovely, well, lovely hair. Okay, so let me just let me just talk about it for a second. I, what I love about this is the idea that that this project is as real as cleaning up the local stream or. You know, convince you know, making a brochure to, to convince fewer teenagers to smoke, um, and and it engages all of the, the interdisciplinary objectives we might have for robotics or computer science or physical computing in the curriculum, but it doesn't do so in the form of a robot or a truck that kills some some other school's truck. It does it in this incredibly beautiful, whimsical way. Um, and and I think that that's really sort. And it, what she created was beautiful, and she learned all the skills that she would need to be able to create all sorts of other things. And she also learned an awful lot about teaching and learning from the experience. Um, I'll skip that. We got this young teacher. I I won't play the the video. Um, you can find it online, but um, or I'll tweet it out again in, in a couple of minutes. This, this teacher was a a teacher of three year old preschoolers from Iowa, who says in the interview that I filmed with her that on the first day of constructing modern knowledge, she felt absolutely helpless and lost and didn't know if she was capable of doing anything. And by the end of the time, she felt sensational. And then she, the camera pulls out to show this elaborate e-textile dress she made that when you shake your hips, it not only lights up, but the dress, um, the dress sways from side to side in the opposite direction from your hips. So it's like, kind of like a, a, a self, self hula dancing skirt. Um, and, and I talked to her about this and I've talked to other early childhood educators about the experience. And, you know, and if you ask teachers of young children what the professional development experiences that are typically available to them are like, they usually say we're treated like imbeciles or we're treated like three-year-olds. We're not treated like someone who can use microcontrollers and conductive thread and programming languages to, to create you know, a, a dress that dances on its own. Um, and you know, CMK is a labor of love. I do it because I know the impact that it has on teachers. It's backbreaking for us. It, 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 it's a giant financial risk every year. Um, but 
but last year when as we were ending CMK, one of the teachers leaving tweeted this where she said, you know, thanks to Gary and Sylvia for another fantastic CMK. I came thinking I didn't belong in the classroom anymore and left thinking it's the only place I want to be. See you <laughs> next year. And again, you know, cool. compare, compare that to, you know, Google training and the other nonsense that, that, that constitutes professional learning opportunities for teachers. Um, you know, this tweet alone is why I'm doing CMK again this year, because the idea that someone had given up on teaching and recognized that, that they really had something to contribute and that things need not be as they seem um, real, really inspires me. And every year we punch above our weight and we have guest speakers who hang around and engage in conversation. And the, the amount of time that they talk to the audience is, is highly um, restricted. So the emphasis is on doing over the four days. But we have Sher Sherry Lassiter, who's going to be hosting us at the MIT Media Lab. She's the CEO and the, the director of the Global Fab Lab initiative, where thousands of communities around the world are using fabrication and electronics and computer programming to solve problems that matter in their own community. And, and she's kind of one of the major drivers behind that. And it also is an, gives us an opportunity to visit the legendary MIT Media Lab. Carrie Cola is a guy I met in Finland this year who owns a botanical garden and butterfly sanctuary in the middle of the frozen tundra. And that's, that's his hobby. His day job is that he's a light artist. He does things like paint mountains purple with light and, and was the first person ever allowed by UNESCO to light Stonehenge and creates light exhibits that turn entire cities into animated buildings. And I always try to have someone each year who's world-class and great at what they do in a occupation that your guidance counselor didn't tell you was an option. And then the last speaker I'm really excited about, I don't know her at all, except I heard her speak and I've seen her in various media interviews and said, oh boy, I need to get her to CMK. And that's Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's arguably the most decorated journalist of our time. She writes for the New York Times Magazine. In the last couple of years, she's been um, the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award, a, a Polk Award, a Chancellor Award, the National Magazine Writers Award. Um, and she's an outspoken um, civil rights activist and advocate for social justice in schools and um, has some very um, provocative things about how all of us are contributing to the ongoing or increasing school segregation in our public schools. Um, and I just thought, given what's happening in the world, it's important for, for educators to spend some time soberly thinking about the, the, the social implications of what's happening in our institutions. And as Bruce and and Will so kindly pointed out, you can find out a lot more at constructingmodernknowledge.com and you can see videos of projects from the past. And we have beginners to folks who have come, I think there's a woman named Donna Collins, who I think is coming for the seventh year this year, which again is kind of extraordinary and tells you that what we're doing isn't step-by-step -step tips and tricks PD. It, it's something that, it's a place, it's an experience where you not only learn a great deal and learn to learn and, and re, re, become re-energized and rethink your practice, um, but but sort of owe it to yourself to have this kind of 
you know, spa week where, where you're reacquainted with yourself. As a learner. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that your uh, four day event is unique. Um, I don't think there's anyone else doing anything like it. And I'm always impressed by the people that you get to come there. I know Deborah Meyer has been there. I know, you know, a lot of people from MIT media lab have been there and uh, everybody who I've talked to who has been there. Huh? Yeah. They just, heroes yeah i mean it's it's just a it's just a great event and so we're we're happy to let people know about that as much as we can um but listen gary i mean can't thank you enough i mean uh we're we're kind of uh, cautiously optimistic about maybe doing a little bit of a tour in october you and i um maybe around agency the 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 why and the how around that maybe in new jersey and boston and toronto hopefully that's coming together but that would be uh, a real thrill for me um, hopefully we can make that happen, but, uh, we love having you on the podcast. We love having you as a friend, uh, as a mentor, as someone who I learn from on a regular basis. And it's just been a real treat getting a chance to talk to you again for another hour or so. So thanks so much for being here. Um, really appreciate it. Best to Sylvia. Thanks to all of you guys who have stuck around and, um, you know, please feel free to tweet out this link and to continue the conversation at MLC. Um, we would love to have you in there as well. And um, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks, Gary. Thanks so much. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it, Mike. Harry Stager on Twitter. Happy to continue. Have a great.